Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. So today we are here to talk about intertextuality. Hi, Chad. Hi, Kim. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. My name is Chad Hagelmeyer. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at NYU in the English department, where I was formerly, just a few months ago, a PhD candidate there with Kim. I study 20th century and contemporary American literature a lot about narrative, and I wrote a dissertation about fact-checking and literature. Excellent. So, Chad, what the heck is intertextuality? Okay, so intertextuality refers to just the way that a text meaning is shaped by other texts. And sometimes the way that this gets talked about is, um, you know, the intertextuality refers to influences or just the sources of a literary work. But actually, it's, it's much more radical than that. So one way of thinking about intertextuality, and actually, this is a way that Julia Kristeva herself, the person who coined this term, encouraged us to think about it, is to picture a text as a 3D space. So think about a situation in which words are not just like floating out there by themselves, totally independent meaning things. They never quite fully detach from the texts or contexts in which they are used. So they have all these like strings attached, attached to them that connect them to all the places in which they're used. And they drag those other texts into the text that we are currently reading. So every word, um, certain phrases or sentences will not just evoke, but like, have these deep connections to other texts. What this means is that a text's meaning is not in it, like it's between it and all the other texts that it's related to. So reading kind of plunges us into like a network of relations <laughs> rather than a text. And we read or we interpret by tracing those relations. Cool. And so you said that Kristeva coined this term, which is not a thing I knew before yeah. you said Isn't it. Isn't that yeah. wild? Yeah, she um, she coined it. So if you don't know Julia Kristeva, she is a Bulgarian literary theorist who spent, I think, most or all of her life in Paris. The field of literary theory that Kristeva was 
sort of thrust into in Paris is called structuralism. And it's really devoted to seeing literature and language as this edifice or this structure that we can like take apart and find out how it works. Mm -hmm. And she's really bothered by how static that is. Like for her, things are not static. They're not these like unchanging structures. They are moving and changing in time. That's why intertextuality is not like a an unmoving connection of texts. It's this like constantly changing network. Uh, okay, nice. Because I was, I was going to ask you how intertextuality is different from modernist references. I don't think what Kristeva means and, and what we often now mean by intertextuality is something like the wasteland with all its footnotes and all of its sort of like reaching back into a grand literary past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually think it's sort of similar um, in a way. Mm -hmm. Like, so the school of literary theory that sort of comes before structuralism in some way is called new criticism, as you know. Mm -hmm. And even though a lot of new critics were kind of champions of modernist literature, there were some things about modernist literature that, at least in my view, they were very uncomfortable about. So yeah, so some new critics uh, like Wimsett and Beardsley and the verbal icon are actually deeply uncomfortable with like the referentiality and the citation and the illusion that's really heavy in modernist poetry. They'll put up with all of the allusions to other texts in the wasteland, but they yep. hate the notes that explain those <laughs> allusions. And their solution is to say that even if the notes uh, were fake, even if all the allusions were to made up texts, like totally fictional texts, that they would still work. Um, and actually they want you to read the notes that way. So they want you to read the things in the notes as if they are just like the same thing as the lines of the poetry in the poem. They're just okay. this creation of the poet. They don't Is actually it... reference anything outside of the poetry or into the world. Right, because they can't handle texts that are not complete unto themselves. Or totally, the they want, yeah. they want they want the text, the poetic text, to be this work of art that has its own separate ontological existence um, that's like totally independent, right? So they hate it when, you know, to understand a text, you have to like put it down for a second and go pick up another book on the bookshelf, right? They don't want that yeah. at all. <laughs> okay, okay. So like, this seems like the exact right moment to ask, how do I use intertextuality? Yeah, so so what Kristeva is saying is like, you actually can't do that. That's completely impossible. That's not how texts mean. Um, you don't necessarily have to get up and pick up that other book. But just by reading and interpreting a text, you're already sort of doing that in your brain. You are already drawing on the other texts in which you've encountered these words or phrases, right? And for her, it, it's even more radical than just allusion or citation, um, mm -hmm. every word. So here's, here's a direct quote from Kristeva. Each word, parentheses text, is an intersection of word, parentheses texts, plural, where at least one other word, parentheses text, can be read. So let me let me reread that in two different ways. So okay. we can read it first as each word is an intersection of word where at least one other word can be read. Or we can read it each text is an intersection of texts where at least one other text can be read, right? So there's never we're never only reading just one text. Where we're reading a text, we're reading other texts as well. And we're using those other texts to read the text that we're reading. Right. Um, 
Okay, so so for her, intertextuality is like a basic function of language. Kind of. I mean, so she does a lot of complex theoretical stuff that come out of semiotics and linguistic mm-hmm. traditions about like denotative meaning and other mm-hmm. types of meaning. And she also has this like really weird insistence that I don't totally understand um, where she says that there's some logic, there's some extra linguistic logic at work here. It's not just like the, mm-hmm. the logic of language itself. There's some other kind of logic at work, according to Kristeva, yeah. and also according to Bart here a bit too, Roland Bart. We're already doing or using intertextuality, and we're doing it in two ways, as writers and readers. Okay. So when we're writing, we're actually performing a kind of reading right? As a writer, you're, so they really want to get rid of this notion of the writing subject, the like, think of the romantic poet and like the poetry just comes from inside of him, right? No, that's not how we do that. As a writer, you're just sort of like a language processor. You're taking in all of this language from other places in your life, and then you're processing it into this new thing, this new text, right? right. So the, Kristeva actually calls this a writing hyphen reading process, a writing okay. reading process. Okay. So that's the writing side. As a reader, you're not just like receiving a message or a signal from the writer through the text. Mm-hmm. You're actually decoding a highly complex network of, network of relationships to produce an interpretation. So mm-hmm. reading itself is a kind of writing, right? You're, okay. you're, you're producing um, the text insofar as you are reading it in this particular way using this particular web of associations. Um, so this kind of goes into like, you can maybe, if you know anything about Roland Barthes, you kind of start to see where something like the death of the author comes from. Indeed. And if you are a listener of this podcast, you might've heard our episode on the death of the author. Excellent. We're already an intertext. But I see what you're getting at. I mean, I see where you might go to get something that is a little bit beyond just the basic functions of language. Cause it's not just meaning that's at stake here, but interpretation, which yes. is a little bit bigger. Yeah, absolutely. And interpretation isn't trying to recover the web of associations that the author had in mind when they wrote it. It's using the ones that you're, you, that you're in contact with as a reader. Cool. Okay. Then uh, here's the big dramatic question. How will intertextuality save the world? Yeah, so um, so I'm obviously very attracted to the idea of intertextuality, and I think it's extremely important for interpreting texts. Like I, you know, a lot of my work starts here. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's something lost in Kristeva, in Bart, and in a lot of these post-structuralist thinkers for me. They're very cold and like the human subject kind of drops out of them, you know, or is like something mm-hmm. we have to dismantle even. Yeah. I I don't like that. I think that like human beings are not just like little nodes <laughs> connecting webs of text together. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's not exactly what they would say either, but I think that there's something interesting going on there that um, is kind of lost here. What Kristeva thinks is good about this is that there's something revolutionary. There's a revolutionary possibility in language and literature. Um, So here's another quote from her. By showing how much of the inside of the text is indebted to its outside, interpretation reveals the inauthenticity of the writing subject. The writer is a subject in process, a carnival, a polyphony without possible reconciliation, a permanent revolt. Um, so, I mean, we yeah, that was so beautiful. I need you to read it again. <laughs> okay. okay, here we go. 
By showing how much of the inside of the text is indebted to its outside, interpretation reveals the inauthenticity of the writing subject. The writer is a subject in process, a carnival, a polyphony without possible reconciliation, a permanent revolt. Nice. So we lose the writer subject, but we get process. We get time. Okay. We get carnival. We get permanent revolt and the possibility of like things actually changing. You know, right, we get right. the possibility of revolution and not just this like static structure that we have to dismantle and put back together like it's a machine or something. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Oh man. We should say goodbye to our listeners. Farewell. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening to me talk about Julia Kristeva and intertextuality for a little bit. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonic Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music and Kim Adams edits our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.